We are in Acts. We're going to be in chapter 22, finishing chapter 22 this morning. We've made a turn in Acts, as we've shared the last couple of weeks. Paul has has made his missionary journeys. He's gone on three different journeys. He traveled through Galatia and through Asia and Macedonia, visiting those churches, planting churches and helping them to grow as they got planted. And he made his way now back. He's decided, he's set his mind, he's he set his focus on getting back to Jerusalem and then on to Rome, even on to Spain was his ultimate goal, was the hope that he had. And so he's made his mind up, he's gotten to Jerusalem and what we talked about last week where we are in the story here in chapter 22 is that Paul and his, his disciples that have been traveling with him, representatives from each of those churches that he had planted in, in Macedonia and in Galatia, those representatives, those disciples are with him. He has come to Jerusalem and he gave a report to James, the leader of the early church there in Jerusalem, Jesus' brother. They give a report to James and to the other apostles that are there, and, and he tells all of the stories, all of the stories about what has been happening. He, he, he recounts all of the things that God has been doing, and he says, and we even have brought this offering. Each of those Gentile churches has brought this offering, and, and I, as I mentioned last week, they probably actually had the physical offering, the bags of coins right there in the room, and said, We've collected this offering from all of these Gentile churches for you, for the, for the Jewish early church, the Jewish believers, because they had been suffering through a drought for about 10 years. And he says, we've brought these things, God has been doing all of this, and, and Luke tells us as he reports it to us here in Acts chapter 21 and 22, he says, he says that it was, it was received, that they, they received the report and they gave glory to God. They rejoiced in what God had been doing, and then they said, but you see, Paul, we have some trouble here in Jerusalem. There's been a a story, a rumor going around that you're saying that these Gentiles, these new believers, that they don't have to follow the law anymore, that says we, we Jews here in Jerusalem, we, we know that we're saved by grace. We know that Jesus came and that Jesus made a way for us to have our sins forgiven. We know that part of it, but we are still working on keeping the law to the best of our ability. We're saved by grace, but we are kept by the law. And as you come back, Paul, and as you begin to bring these Gentile believers with you, it's not gonna work very well. These other Jewish believers, they're going to get upset. They're going to be upset that you're here. We need to prove to them that you also believe in the law. So, they say to Paul, do what we tell you to do. We want you to take, to sponsor some of these men that are coming out of a Nazarite vow in just a few days. We want you to sponsor them and all of their sacrifices at the temple. We want you to go yourself, they say to Paul, and we want you to purify yourself as you go into the temple so that you can come and be clean and be a part of our church with us. And Paul, surprisingly, I shared last week, Paul accepts their instructions. He says, okay, I'll do what you're asking me to do. I will sponsor these men. I will go to the temple. I will go through that ritual to purify myself so that I might be 
purified within the law of the Jewish church. He accepts that and in the midst of this purification ritual and the several days that's happening there as he's, as he's traveling around Jerusalem and he's spotted by different people, he's, he's spotted by some of the Jews from Ephesus, some of the Asian Jews, Paul says. And when those Jews see him, they begin to cause a stir, just as they had in lots of other cities in the midst of Paul's travels. They begin to cause a stir. They begin to talk about how Paul is breaking these Jewish commands and these Jewish laws, and they get people riled up. In fact, they have seen Paul with a Gentile right there in in Jerusalem, one of the men from Ephesus, and they assume that that Paul has taken this man, this Gentile, into the inner courts of the temple where only Jews could go. And so they begin to get people stirred up. They begin to get people riled up. And in fact, in the midst of that, they, they grab Paul and they pull him out of the temple courts and they slam the gates of the temple and they drag Paul out and they're beating him and they're attempting to kill him. And this riot becomes so big that the Roman soldiers who have a, a fortress just on the outside of the temple courts, in fact, I think we have a picture of that we showed last week, There's a temple, the Antonia Fortress there overlooks the courtyard. And so the Romans, the soldiers, are in that fortress. They see what's happening in the courtyard. They rush down there, probably more than 200 soldiers, we figure, rush down to try to keep the peace. And it's it's those soldiers who really save Paul's life in this moment. They grab him. They protect him from, from the beating that he was getting, that they were trying to kill him. And they're chanting, away with him, away with him, away with him, they say to Paul. There's such an uproar that the, the, the leader, the leader of this group of soldiers grabs Paul and they have to haul him away. They know there's no way they're going to get to the bottom of it right here in the courtyard. So they haul him towards the barracks, back towards the fortress. They haul Paul out and just before they get inside the barracks, just before they get inside the fortress, Paul asks, can I speak? Is there a way that I can, can speak to all of, these, all of these Jews and Jewish believers that are gathered here in the courtyard that have been trying to beat me? And the soldier stops. Let's Paul share. And so Paul does. He begins to share his testimony. He begins to share about what God, how, how he had been the best of the Jews, how he had been one of the best of the Pharisees, and begins to try to get those Jews on his side. Then he begins to share about how he came and met with Jesus and how Jesus had come and changed his life. He tells his conversion there on the road to Damascus. He tells of that story and begins to try to get the Jewish believers to understand who he is and where he has come from. And he does all of that, and, and as you're looking up there in, in Scripture, you see in, in, in Acts chapter 22, he, he shares that testimony, and then he says in verse 21, it says, G, Paul, is, Paul is speaking, talking about Jesus, and says, and he said to me, Jesus said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And immediately upon that word, it says, Gentiles, upon that word, another uproar begins to take place. 
And last week I, I, I shared with you that, that Paul was willing, as we see in this passage, Paul's willing to do anything to, for the church. He loves the church. He's trying to bring unity to the church. That's, that's why he, when he brought this report back, he brought this offering and, and these disciples, they brought this offering from the Gentile churches is because he wants, he wants all believers to be united together in their love for Jesus. He wants the whole church to be together. He wants unity in the church, and he's willing to do anything. He's willing to be the sponsor of these men coming out of the Nazarite vow. He's willing to to purify himself at the temple. He's willing to do whatever it takes so that the church might be unified. Even, Even when he's beaten and tried to be killed, he's brought to the steps, he takes one more chance to speak and to try to share so that the church might be unified. Paul loves the church, he loves the people of the church, and he wants the church to be filled with those that know Jesus. He wants the church to be filled with believers. He doesn't care if they're Jews or Gentiles. He doesn't care if they're under the law or not under the law. He doesn't care. He doesn't care if they're circumcised or uncircumcised. What he cares about is if they have placed the full weight of their trust in Jesus as their savior. If they have been moved from death to life, they've gone from being lost to being found. He wants people to know Jesus. And so he attempts over and over to declare that and to point them, to point them to him. So that's where we pick up this story. Paul has has been grabbed by the guards. He's been marched off to the barracks. He stopped. He shared his testimony He says the word Gentiles and another uproar begins. That's where we pick it up here in chapter 22, verse 22. It says, up to this word they listened to him. And then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they'd stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum, Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and he set them before them. Looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded that those who stood beside him strike him on his mouth. And Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it's written, you shall not speak even of a ruler of your people. 
Now when Paul perceived that one part of the were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out to the council. It is with respect to the hope Brothers, he cried out to the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, no angel, no spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. When a great clamor arose, some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from them by force, bringing him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood with him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Paul is trying to unite the church. He's trying to unite believers. He's sharing his testimony. He says, he says, Jesus himself has called me to go to the Gentiles. And these strict Jews and these Jewish believers, they, they aren't united on much in the midst of their time together, but this is one thing that they can get on board together with. When, when Paul uses the word Gentiles, an uproar takes off. A violent uproar, so violent that this tribune and his guards haul Paul off into the barracks. Jews, Jews and Jewish Christians, they are united. They're united in their passion. They're united in their fury that Paul would suggest, that Paul would would give the idea that Jews, whether they're strict Jews or believing Christian Jews, that Paul would give the idea that Jews and Gentiles could be equals, that Jews and Gentiles might both, might both be co-heirs with the Messiah, that they might be children of God. And so there's such a large uproar that the tribune, we find later his name is Claudius Lysias, we'll find in the next few chapters, that Lysias has Paul drugged back into the barracks. He still can't, Lysias still doesn't understand what's happening. He, he knows that there's this uproar. He knows that these men are trying to beat Paul and kill him. He knows that, that Lysias knows that he has rescued Paul and saved his life by dragging him out of the crowd. But he still doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't have an idea of, of, of what's happening with all of this. And so he decides, really, the best way for me to get this information is to beat it out of him. And so Lysias decides that if he can't figure it out any other way, he's going, to strap, he's going to have Paul strapped down and he's going to flog him. He's going to beat him with whips. In a beating that possibly could be so severe that Paul might not even survive it. And Paul, up until this point, I think that Paul has come, Paul, Paul came into Jerusalem 
rushing back. He had, his, he had his, his mind set. He had his eyes focused. He wanted to get back to Jerusalem. He wanted to be there at Pentecost. He wanted to be there when there was a large group of Jews, when he could, could share and evangelize with the Jews as he got there, just as he had in all of the other cities. Paul, had, Paul had, was intentional about trying to get back. I think Paul thought, if I could only get there, and if I could only share, if I could only speak, if I could only persuade, I think I could change the minds of people. I think even, even in this instance, when he's being beaten and he's left in the courtyard and the, and the guards rescue him and, and keep him from being killed, I think even in that moment, Paul speaks out to the guard and says, just give me one more chance. Let me just share one more time. Let me tell them my testimony. Let me tell them about how I was the best of the Jews. And then let me tell them about how Jesus met me on the Damascus Road. If I could just explain, if I could just talk to them, they'll understand. If I could just share a little bit more, if I could just spend some time telling them my story, Everyone will come to the same decision. Everyone will see that Jesus is the way. And it's at this point, I think, when he's actually being strapped down, moments, just moments before he's about to be whipped, I think he decides, I'm, I'm in trouble. I haven't been able to persuade anybody. I haven't been able to, to convince them with my words. What's go- and so... Paul decides in this moment his hope, his rescue, is not going to come from his persuasive speech. But instead, Paul has to play a different card here. And Paul finally realizes that it's time for him to talk about his Roman citizenship. He hasn't talked about it up until this point. He hasn't been talking about that. He hasn't shared that. And nobody knows that Paul is a Roman citizen. But in this moment, just before he's about to get beaten, he realizes, I cannot, I cannot persuade with my words. I have to find rescue in something else. And so he plays his Roman citizenship card. We don't know a lot about how Paul became a Roman citizen. We know that that citizenship... For, for the people in the Roman kingdom at this time, it was not automatically granted. For those of us who, who are Americans, we know, we, under, we kind of have a picture of how American citizenship works, that if, if you are, are born to American citizens, your parents are American citizens, you automatically receive their citizenship. If you're born in America, you are automatically an American citizen. If you are, are even born outside of the country but born to American citizens, you are an American citizen. We understand how that gets passed down. But in Roman times, citizenship was not automatically conferred onto all of those who were born in the Roman territory. Now, there are some cities inside this Roman territory or this Roman occupation that are classified and considered as Roman cities. If you're born in one of those cities, you become a Roman citizen. Philippi would have been one of those cities that we've been talking about. But lots and lots of the rest of the Roman-occupied territories are not considered Roman country. And so citizenship is not guaranteed in those places. Where where Paul is from, Tarsus in Cilicia, it would not have been automatically assumed that he would be a Roman citizen. 
In fact, Lysias, the, the guard, he too was not a Roman citizen. By birth, he had to purchase his citizenship. During this time in, in, in the Roman Empire, the, they, the, the coffers were beginning to dry up, and so they were attempting to raise money. And so Claudius began uh, the idea of selling Roman citizenship for an exorbitant amount, and he would sell it to whoever could pay that exorbitant amount. They also would then be considered Roman citizens. They, they would have their names written in to the Roman citizenship roles that were kept in those cities. And Lysias was able to purchase one of those citizenship cards from the government. Paul, though, Paul, though, says, I didn't have to purchase mine. My citizenship I was born into, which means that his father or grandfather would have been a citizen. That's really all we know. We don't know, we don't know how his citizenship came. We don't know whether, whether his, his father or grandfather, we, we assume that they had means uh, Paul, we know, was raised in Jerusalem and was taught by Gamaliel, and so that would, have been, that would have been extraordinary for someone during that time. That would have been a rarity. So we know that they probably had means, but we do not know whether they were able to, to purchase a citizenship farther back in their genealogy or whether they were granted one. Sometimes families would have been granted Roman citizenship if they had done some kind of special favor or they had some kind of, of skill that was valued by the Romans. And so there's, there's talk that possibly uh, Paul's father or grandfather would have been such a tent maker that the army would have needed some of the skills that he had, and so they would have granted him citizenship. There's the possibility that maybe they bought it. We don't know. What we do know is that Paul was a citizen. This isn't something, this isn't something that you would lie about. Paul would not just pull out that and pretend that he was a citizen just to stop the flogging because everyone knew that if you pretended to be a Roman citizen, if you claimed citizenship and then they go and check the logs and you're not, if your name is not in the book, then, you, then the automatic punishment is death. You would have been put to death. And so Paul would not have, have pretended to do this. Lysias, though, he knows that if he were to beat a Roman citizen, he also would be put to death, whether he was a citizen or not, whether Lysias is a citizen or not. And so, in this moment, Paul cries out and says, is it just for you to do this, for I am a Roman citizen? They have the conversation, how did you get your citizenship? And at that moment, Lysias retracts his, his beating he, he, in fact, is scared that Paul might retaliate or that he might, might share farther up the line what Lysias has done, and so he's, he's scared. Paul has found a temporary repeat, reprieve. Paul is, is rescued. He's, he's saved from this punishment in this moment. He's saved from possible death in this moment by his Roman citizenship. But Lysias the commander, the tribune, he's not done. He was not able to beat out the information that he wanted 
from Paul, and so he decides that it's time to go to the Jewish authorities, to the rulers in the Sanhedrin, to go to them, to, to bring them into council so that they can question Paul, so that he can get, he knows that the uproar is among the Jews, and so he wants to have Paul brought before the Jewish leaders, before the Jewish authorities, so that they can question Paul and he can figure out what is going on, why is there such an uproar about this man. And so he has the Sanhedrin gathered together the Jewish priests and the council that rule over all Jewish matters. He brings them into a special gathering, a special unplanned meeting. And when he does that, Paul begins and starts off with, uh, with he doesn't have a great start as he comes before the council. He says, brothers, I've lived my life before God in good conscience up to this day. He says, he says what you're accusing me of, I have not done. I've lived according to the law. I've done what you've wanted me to do and I have not done what's being, what's being shared about me. I didn't break the law. I didn't bring this Gentile into the temple courts. I didn't do this. I have good conscience. But as he shares that, immediately the high priest Ananias commands the men standing next to Paul to strike him in the mouth. And Paul immediately immediately responds to that. Paul shouts out and says, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those around him can't believe it. Paul has, has spoken out so boldly to the high priest. In fact, they say to Paul, you, you, you can't talk to the high priest like that. Would you dare? Talk to the high priest as you just did? And we have an interesting response from Paul. He says, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it's written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. What are we supposed to do with that response? In fact, as, as I read, there's, there's all kinds of ideas about what this means for Paul. There's, it really comes down to, to two overarching thoughts. One, Paul sincerely does not know that this is the high priest. That's, that's one idea here. Maybe it's because several commentators talk about Paul's eyes not being very strong. He has weak eyes. So maybe he, he possibly can't see who's speaking at him. It's possible that because this is a, a meeting that was not scheduled, that, that, they're, that they've come and they're not wearing the, the normal robes and clothes that they would have been wearing, and so the high priest is not differentiated by the, from the other men that are there. Maybe it's because um, he's hidden, the high priest, as he gives this instruction, is hidden in the crowd. He's behind some others, and Paul just physically can't see him. Or maybe one of the, one of the ideas is that in the time that Paul has been away from Jerusalem, this, there's been a change. Ananias is a new high priest at this time, and Paul doesn't know him. Paul was familiar with the council. He, he was not probably on the Sanhedrin, but he would have, he would have rubbed elbows with most of these people when he was, was a, a Pharisee and when he was a Jew there in Jerusalem before his conversion. But Ananias, he doesn't know, and he doesn't know that Ananias is the high priest. And so maybe, maybe he responds back in this way because he truly, sincerely does not know 
that this man is the high priest. The other explanation might be that he, he does know and he just responds in sarcasm saying, you call yourself a priest, but you really aren't following the law. I don't know. I can't give you the actual for sure. We, it's not spelled out to us. It appears to me, it appears to me that Paul is sincere in his response. It appears to me that Paul uh, reacted, responded in anger, that he legitimately did not know that this was the high priest, and he, he responds back now in an apology. Not in sarcasm, but in a true, sincere apology. I did not know. I didn't know that he was, was the high priest. It's written, you shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. Because remember, Paul is doing whatever he can Paul's doing whatever he can to bring unity to the church. And I think Paul in this moment doesn't, doesn't, want to, doesn't want to rub the nose of the high priest in this, but instead he wants, to, he wants to apologize. He wants to come humbly. He wants to bring unity. But Paul also knows the crowd. Paul first found rescue in his Roman citizenship, but here we find that Paul finds rescue in his own misdirection. Paul knows the Sadducees and the Pharisees. He knows that they have one major sticking point. They can meet on this, on this committee together to try to decide things, but there's one thing that's, that's such a sticking point for them that they cannot agree on it, and Paul knows the ins and outs of the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and so Paul, Paul right away says, this is all about the resurrection. It's respect to the hope of the resurrection from the dead that I'm on trial. He doesn't even bring up at this point the name of Jesus. He just brings up the idea of the resurrection. And he knows that just that idea is going to get the Sadducees and the Pharisees at each other's throats. That's exactly what happens. The Pharisees, in fact, begin to fight for Paul. Even when they were against him earlier, they began to fight for Paul. And the Sadducees and the Pharisees begin to battle each other. And it's not just a kind conversation that they're having. It becomes such an uproar. It becomes so violent that Lysias once again grabs Paul and physically hauls him out of the meeting and back to the barracks. Paul's first rescued. Paul's first rescued by his Roman citizenship. He's secondly rescued by his own cunningness, his own ability, his own observation of the crowd and his ability to misdirect them. But both of those, both of those rescues are temporary. Both of those rescues are not going to last long. His life is still in danger. He's still being physically dragged by the guards back to the barracks every time something happens because that's the only protection that he can have. But we find a third protection that comes here in verse 11 of chapter 23. There's been temporary rescue in his Roman citizenship. There's been temporary saving in his own ability and cunningness. But here in chapter 23, verse 11, it says, the following night, the Lord, Jesus, stood before him and says, if you're looking in your Bible there, in red letters, you read, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. 
Now, Paul has been rescued. Now, Paul's life has been preserved. His Roman citizenship worked for a little bit. His cunningness in the, fact that in the front of the Sanhedrin, it works for a little bit. But now, Jesus himself says, take courage. Take courage. That word in the New Testament is the same word that Jesus uses when, when the disciples are, are on the sea and the storm is raging and Jesus says, take courage, don't be afraid. It's the same word that Jesus uses in the upper room on the night of his crucifixion when he says to the disciples, take courage, I have overcome the world. Take heart, It's the word he uses there, same word, take heart. Paul hears these words from the same man and now knows he has security. He has an invincibility that Jesus has finally provided in this moment for Paul a true and a lasting rescue. We're reminded in this passage that ultimate control for Paul, ultimate control did not rest in Roman authority. Ultimate control did not rest in Jewish authority. Ultimate control did not rest in Paul's own ability to persuade or his own ability to divide and and his cunningness. His ultimate control rests not in those authorities or those abilities, but instead his ultimate control rests in the all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present, totally in control, God who is bringing his kingdom, his will, through his son, Jesus. He is the ultimate rescuer. There's nowhere else to go. There's no one else to hope in. There's no other device that we can conjure up. It's Jesus. He's the hope. He's our only hope. He's our ultimate worship team is going to come and help us today as we close our service together. God is establishing a kingdom and we see it here in Acts. We've been studying it here through all of these chapters that God is establishing a kingdom through the hands and feet and mouths of men but ultimately through the sovereignty of his own will that God is the one who brings rescue. God is the one who is ultimately in charge of all things and ultimate control rests in him. Stand with me this morning as we sing together. Your glorious cause, O God, engages our hearts. May Jesus Christ be known wherever we are. We ask not for ourselves, but for your renown. The cross has saved us, so we pray. 
service this morning. God is ultimately in charge of all things, and yet we also know from Scripture that he has called us to be led by men, led by elders here in the church. And so we've been talking these last couple weeks about affirming two new elders here in our body. We've talked about that the last couple weeks. We've emailed you about that. And so this morning, I think we're ready to take that affirmation vote. And so I wanna give you some instructions about that as we leave today. We have two different kinds of ballots that are on two tables in the back of the sanctuary. There's a, a yellowish color that in the top right-hand corner says non-member ballot, and there's a blue colored sheet that says member ballot in the top right-hand corner. We want to invite all of you to cast an affirmation ballot today. If you are a member of the church, if you have gone through the membership process, the class, and been brought into membership, we'd ask that you'd fill out one of these blue sheets. If you are a non-member, we'd just ask that you would make that affirmation on this golden yellow sheet. And then, 
If you can just leave those with Joel, the secretary, Joel Stewart is the secretary of our elder board. He will be at the welcome center at the counter in the foyer. We would just ask that you would take those ballots and then leave them with him this morning. It takes a majority of affirmations for those new elders to serve on our elder board. And so we will tally those up later today and then let you know the results of that elder affirmation. If you have any questions about that, please come and see me or see one of our other elders and we can visit about that this morning even if you have any questions about that. Stand with me as we close with our benediction today, please. Paul says in Ephesians chapter three, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power that is at work within us to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Thanks for coming. Please pick up your ballots in the back.